This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin here once again with Dr. Stan May to explore some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. The first question is this, what world-changing news did the angels announce to the women? And why is it surprising that women were the first to know about Jesus' resurrection? Jonathan, Earth's saddest day, the Friday of the crucifixion, when the innocent lamb was slain on behalf of guilty sinners, gives way to earth's gladdest day as the angels declare, He is not here. He is risen, just as He said. The women who had come to anoint the body become the first emissaries of the resurrection. Now, in the ancient world, you and I know, the testimony of women wasn't considered valid. If the gospel writers were presenting a fiction, if they were just creating a story to... Uh, convince people of their religious views, they would never choose women as the first hearers because it wouldn't have any credibility. The very fact that they include this detail is a demonstration of the truthfulness, the veracity of their accounts, because they couldn't help but record it. Hmm. Amen. Now we're going to do something unusual um, because these were all, uh, I thought, so critical. We're going to deal with all three questions from November 6th. So the first is this, how does Jesus explain to the Emmaus travelers and to his disciples all the truths about himself, and how do the Emmaus travelers describe their experience? Jesus walks back through the biblical story to prove that all things that had happened to him were foretold in the Hebrew scriptures. Luke twice uses the threefold designation that shows that the Jews had a canon, an understanding of a biblical corpus, and that they knew what was in the canon and that all the canon of Scripture testified to Jesus. The law, when he says the law, it means the books of Moses, the five books of Moses. The prophets include the former prophets of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and the latter prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Twelve. The Psalms are the largest book of the writings, all the Old Testament books that fill out the Old Testament corpus, and, they, and, the, and the writings, the third division, ends with Chronicles. As Jesus illumined all this truth, and he unpacks the scriptures for them, the Bible says their hearts burned within them as he opened the scriptures. So real was their experience that they immediately retraced a seven-mile walk back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night to tell the disciples what happened. And next, how does Jesus deal with Thomas's doubt and Peter's denial? And what do these stories teach us about Jesus and about his patience with us? When John records Jesus' first experience, he tells us that Thomas was absent. The disciples recounted their experience, but he was openly skeptical, saying, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand in the wound in his side, which affirms these things actually happened to Jesus. Jesus appeared again to the disciples with Thomas present, inviting him to do just as he had said, which means Jesus knew what Thomas had said earlier and did not rebuke him for it, but instead invited him to do that. Thomas confessed, My Lord... And my God, Jesus did not deny his lordship or his deity. And and if he were an honest man and it weren't true, he would have had to. But 
Jesus used this story to announce a blessing instead on those who have not seen and still believe. In the same way, Jesus, uh, John recorded Jesus' restoration of Peter. Peter determined to go back to his previous career. When he said, I go fishing, he didn't mean I'm just going to go out for a night of fishing. He meant I'm turn, going back to my old trade. Jesus comes and finds him on the beach. Uh, after they had toiled all night and caught nothing, Jesus prepared food for them, invited them to dine with him. And when they realized it was him, they came. There, John uses the very clear picture. There's a charcoal fire. Now, in Greek, and you know this, in the Greek, charcoal was the same fire that was the one at which Peter was seated when he denied the Lord. A charcoal fire is burning there by the sea, and in that, Jesus restores Peter. He doesn't just restore him. He challenges him three times. Peter, do you love me? Hmm. He uses the word agape and the word phileo, but still the underlying message is, Peter, if you love me, I'm restoring you to a task. Feed my sheep, shepherd my lambs, care for the ministry. Because ministry is never done out of love for sheep, but out of love for the shepherd. Hmm. When we love the Lord Jesus, we will do what he's called us to do. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Instead, after this disastrous failure, Jesus restores him. For me, this gives me hope because I can look at my life and I can see a litany of failures hmm. in thought, in word, and in deed. And yet the Lord Jesus continually restores and encourages me for his glory and for my good. Amen. Amen. How does the Lord Jesus express his love for the world and his commission to reach the world in each of the Gospels? Luke tells us at the very beginning of the Gospel that Jesus came to bring good news of great joy to all peoples, and to fulfill the numerous prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures about being a light to the Gentiles. So it's no surprise then that Jesus commissions his followers, first the apostles and then all believers, to go to all the nations, preaching repentance and faith in him. Each gospel emphasizes a unique insight. Matthew instructs to go to all nations and make disciples. And make disciples is a comprehensive term, including seeking the lost, proclaiming the good news, persuading people to follow Christ, and not only to make disciples, but to mark them with believers' baptism, and not only to mark them, but to mature them to learn to obey Jesus as Lord, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. The idea is there is not just that a simple teach them every command I gave, which includes that. But it's to teach them that if Jesus is Lord, everything else is turned on its head because I have to obey him if he says it. Mark simply commands him to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. Luke focuses on the message of repentance and faith and says that, uh, from all, uh, says that you are to be witnesses to me from all of the Old Testament canon, while John simply says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Each of these commissions requires obedience to go, requires us to proclaim Christ and expect him to work through his obedient followers because Jesus loves the world. Mm. His heart is for all the nations to know him. Mm. Amen. Amen. Next, what promise does Jesus give to those who wait in Jerusalem and what is not for them to know? 
And how is Jesus' promise fulfilled? The promise that Jesus gives, Jonathan, is the fulfillment of John the Baptist's prophecy. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire in Luke, and all the Gospels record it. He tells them that when the Holy Spirit has come upon the believers, they will receive power. Now, there's a play on words in, in in, in the Acts, Luke does, because power and authority are two different words. And Jesus notes that authority belongs to the Father, but and he alone, the Father alone, knows the time of the kingdom's final coming, and that's not the disciples to question. Again, not they're not on that committee. <laughs> and in the same way, I'm not on that committee, so it's not my worry either. But power for witness is our responsibility. On the day of Pentecost, one of the seven annual Jewish feasts, Jesus promises fulfilled as the Holy Spirit comes with sound, fire and power just as the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle of the temple so the spirit's coming ushers in a new era of god's work among his people he fills the disciples with his glorious presence and they proclaim his wonders and his gospel Hmm. next what is the focus of peter's message in acts 2 and how do the people respond to what activities do the new believers devote themselves, and what does this teach us about the church? Peter preaches Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus as the suffer, the servant who suffered for sinners, Jesus as the one who was raised from the dead as prophesied by David, and Jesus as Lord and Christ. He calls on all those who hear to repent and believe testifying to that faith by baptism, and 3,000 souls respond after being convicted of their sin, believing on Christ, and following him in believer's baptism. That conviction is so deep that the text of Scripture uses, they were cut to the heart. Mm -hmm. So God speaks through his word, and we see the power of the word to convict sinners, the power of the spirit to convert sinners, and the power of the response of faith to receive Christ as Lord. Hmm. The new church then, and these people become together, and they're called a church right from the start. They devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And what's really amazing about that statement is you would think in Acts 2 they would say Jesus' doctrine, but they don't. Hmm. They say the apostles' doctrine, which means that from the start, the apostles are recognized as authoritative representatives of the Lord Jesus, and their teaching becomes the foundation of the new church. They devote themselves to fellowship, which is not cookies and cake, but really mutually encouraging and caring for one another. They devote themselves to breaking of bread, both in the Lord's Supper meal and in eating together and in prayer. Prayer becomes both the response to God's work and the impetus for its continuous. Churches who veer from Scripture, which is which is what we're talking about now, what does this teach us about church? If we get away from Scripture, the, the repository of the Apostles' Doctrine, if we get away from real fellowship, sharing life together, if we get away from celebrating the ordinances properly, and if we get away from true prayer, churches always go astray. The heart of ministry is, as the disciples will say later, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The heart of, this, of, the, of the church has to stay focused on apostles' doctrine, a life of prayer, sharing life together, and serving one another. Hmm. Amen. Amen. How do the apostles address the problem of the widows, and what does this teach about leaders and priorities? Well, this passage teaches us that problems will arise in church, both from within 
and from without. There are people outside. They've, they've suffered persecution in Acts 5 and within. Now, uh, they, th- there's a, uh, a conflict because the Grecian widows, and just a very minor, quick word of explanation, in the New Testament there were Jewish Hebrew people and Greek-speaking Jews who had come to faith in Christ. Their first language was Greek. They were not from Jerusalem, so they didn't speak Aramaic. They spoke Greek. And the Grecian widows are being neglected, which creates a dissension, a big deal, because unity matters. Jesus Mm -hmm. prays for unity in John 17. He says, Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one, that the world may know you have sent me. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, we have to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the disciples immediately, or the apostles immediately recognize the unity of the church is threatened. The congregation wisely brings the problem to the apostles, which today would be to take the problem to the Lord in prayer and to the Word, the apostles' teaching, Then the apostles instruct the congregation to select men with the right qualifications, both to serve the body and to safeguard the office of the pastor so that the pastors can give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Though not called deacons, the verb to serve, which they use there, they serve, is the root of the word deacon, and they fulfill a servant role. Uh, Stanley Porter in the uh, Christian Standard uh, Bible study Bible wrote this. Each of the seven men filled a position that later became reserved for deacons. Informally, therefore, these were the first Christian deacons. The body selects under apostolic guidelines, and when the church handles problems biblically and wisely, both church health and church growth occur. As you know from the story, the church is unified, and many disciples come to faith in Christ. Churches flourish when they have good leadership who are with those who are focused on their calling, and the church, the gathered body, exercises its responsibility of oversight, guarding the unity, dealing with problems, and and bringing up God and, and responding to with godly solutions. Hmm. And lastly, how does the Lord prepare both Cornelius and Peter for their encounter? And why must Cornelius hear the message to be saved? What does this story teach us about the gospel? Well, Cornelius is really the ultimate God-fearer. You're going to run into the phrase a God-fearer in the book of Acts. A God-fearer means someone who's probably not gone through the rite of circumcision and become a full proselyte of Judaism, but someone who has uh, embraced the idea that there's only one God, embraced the Jewish scriptures as the truth, and has been, and in Cornelius' case, has been helped with Jewish work, been praying, giving, and fasting. All this activity, however, has not saved him. It has, however, caused God to see his heart and send to him a vision. Cornelius has a vision that he should go and invite a man named Peter, tells him where he is, how to send to him, and bring him because he has to hear the message that Peter's going to proclaim. At the same time, God's been working in the heart of Peter because for Peter, being around a Gentile is the ultimate dishonor. Hmm. To associate, eat meals with Gentiles would be, for him, tantamount to sin. Hmm. God has to convince him by a vision that's very clear, a voice that's clearer than the vision, what I've called clean, don't you dare call unclean. Hmm. And so God sends him 
to Cornelius' house through the vision and through the invitation of these men. Mm-hmm. And when Cornelius and his friends hear the gospel, and Peter preaches the gospel, because when Peter gets there, they want to fall at his feet and worship him. Peter stops that immediately, and Peter proclaims Christ. He is Lord of all, Peter says. And he proclaims his death and his resurrection, and in the middle of that proclamation, the Holy Spirit comes upon these people because their hearts are already ready. They're they're listening to the word. They're responding in faith to that word. They believe that word. They repent. They receive Christ as Lord. The Holy Spirit confirms their salvation by giving them the same experience that the apostles experienced on Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, where they speak in tongues, and it's obvious that they're testifying to the greatness of God mm-hmm. because the disciples understand what they're saying. They know they're testifying. Men who probably don't speak Aramaic now are speaking Aramaic, or we assume, and and they're testifying to the grace of God. The Holy Spirit gives them that salvation before water baptism, which teaches us that salvation is predicated upon receiving the gospel, not being baptized, and baptism is a confirmatory, evidentiary response to salvation. Hmm. Amen. Thank you, Dr. May. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the Word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible.